This episode is brought to you by Edelkrone, reinventing filmmaking solutions for filmmakers. Learn more at http colon backslash backslash edel dot kr backslash nfs. Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for 2020. I'm Charles Hayne, writer at No Film School. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief George Edelman. Hello. And writer Michelle De La Tour. Hi everyone. And we're going to be doing a very mild spoiler discussion of 1917. We're going to be talking about Chris Terrio's comments about why there wasn't more Rose and Leia in the new Star Wars movie and the internet backlash that that created. And we're also going to be talking about the new Insta360 ONE-R, which is a modular action camera, which is kind of interesting. And we're going to wrap it all up with an Ask No Film School about successful short films this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so first up, we're talking about 1917. So to be clear, everybody, we're usually pretty spoiler-filled on this podcast. We we, we talk, Since this is a four filmmakers kind of podcast, we try and talk about all aspects of filmmaking. So we assume, you know, you have seen it or you're willing to skip some spoilers because we want to talk about, like, the whole structure of a movie. And with 1917, where it's effectively one shot, I mean, technically it's not. It's 50 shots or whatever, but it's meant to feel like one shot. You've got to talk about sort of the way the whole thing plays out all as a unit. We're going to try our best not to spoil anything too important, but there's a couple things from from along the way that we're we're going to talk about that might mildly count as spoilers. And you can skip ahead to the next segment and we'll include a timestamp for that. So Ooh. if you check the post on this or check the write-up, you'll see where to go to the next segment if you don't want to hear about 1917. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't been following 1917, literally, I think just won the Golden Globe for something. I didn't actually watch the Globes. I just saw that it I sure saw, did. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they're doing a release strategy that is very awards focused. So like here in New York, it's only playing in two theaters, even though it opened on Christmas. I don't know how many it's playing in in L.A., but they are very much they're very clearly rolling it out slowly with the goal of winning a lot of awards and then going big around awards time. And I think that. For this movie, it's probably smart. It's Sam Mendes, who's won a lot of awards, but it's also an astonishing movie in a lot of ways that really tries to tell the story of World War One from a very grounded, a single 24-hour at most, I mean, probably 14-hour period. I don't know exactly how many hours it took place. It depends on how long the night is, which depends on what time of year it is. Um, and it's all told in a single shot. Uh, effectively, it's more like two shots in sort of screen time, and obviously they broke it up into a whole bunch of invisible cuts because shooting a 90-minute movie in one take that takes place is over, like, both of the trenches <laughs> under tunnels with explosions would have just been... No man's land. Oh, my God, it would have been Bunkers. exhausting. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. We've run a couple on the No Film School site. Uh, George, you did an amazing interview with Roger Deakins, which I thought had, I mean... There's so much to learn in that interview, but if nothing else, one of my favorite things to talk about is in that interview, which is four months of rehearsals. Four months. Yeah. You can never prep enough. And that's the thing is whenever like, whenever I run into a like a thing where people are like, oh, I'm going to do this thing in a wonder and we're shooting on Saturday and... And I'm like, okay, so how many rehearsal <laughs> days are built in? And, I'm, and, and it's like, no, we'll like block it in the morning and do it in the afternoon. And I'm like, wonders are so hard. Wonders are so hard. It was also really interesting that in that interview, Deacons was like, yeah, I tend to think of Wonders as a gimmick. Um, yeah. And uh, and he had to be sold on doing it in one. And the script is what sold him on doing it in one. Because the story is really designed. 
like the hardest thing about a wonder is not the cinematography. The hardest thing about, a, especially in the digital era, the hardest thing about a wonder is making the story work. Like writing a script that's so strong that you don't need to fix a single damn thing later. Like is the challenge. And for me, I feel I, I honestly feel like they succeeded. I don't know about you guys. They really you use so you use editing a lot to create pacing, to create emotion. You know, editing is a huge tool, obviously. I think they used the score in a lot of ways to create that same rhythm when they couldn't do it with cuts. So they sort of introduced you to a new emotional beat sometimes through the score. And I think that people will look at the cinematography and Deacons, of course, and the directing and the script. script. But I think they may easily overlook how well scored that movie is. Well, and did you know that they actually did that in one take as well? The, the... <laughs> did they really? No. No, they absolutely did not. Because you're totally right. They used the score for editing. <laughs> yeah, if they'd actually, if the score like, was what? in one take, that would have been, yeah. Did they have him performing live on set, dogma style, right behind? Yes, and they just turned the boom mic over and recorded it. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, he did an amazing job, and I don't think like there's a lot of great scores out there. There's a lot of great composers, but I think the way this score creates some of the mood that a cut might is a really interesting thing to look at if you watch the movie again. I'd certainly love to look at it again and think more about that, but I was aware of it at the time. Um, and I just would also add about the interview and about Roger Deakins. Um, he didn't, he, it, it is really interesting that he didn't want to talk much about the, where the cuts are and I mean, he, how they did it. It's it, to him. It was like, I don't want to do this. If, if people are just going to be thinking about the one shot, because he doesn't like to do anything that calls attention to itself. So his goal was to make it, of course, serve the story. But I really think it's a, everybody talks about doing stuff that serves the story. I think this is like a monumental achievement of just doing something visually impressive that's totally invisible within the purpose of the story. I mean, do you, do you think it is totally invisible? No, it's not. Um, That's a good point. But it's a part of what the story is. Does that make sense? So, like, I think it's invisible within the story in the sense that, you know, the one shot at the opening of Boogie Nights or Touch of Evil or the one in the player, they're not so story focused. They're just like, okay, I'm watching the one shot now. Or the big um, Copacabana one shot in Goodfellas. Like, there are a lot of one shots, oneers that just, you're like, oh, cool, it's a oneer. That's what's happening now. And why is it a wonder? Because it's cool, I think. Not because it's like, you know, this is a wonder because we're following these men and it's personal. And it's it's their experience of the war. It's like a human personal experience of a very big war. Um, a world war, really. And I think that that is why it works. Because it's, it's tied to the purpose, the intent of the story. So I do feel like it's invisible in terms of its story intent. I mean, in terms of as a viewer, yeah, you're very aware at times of of how incredible this thing you're seeing is. At your screenings, were people, as they left, were people talking to each other about where they saw the cuts? 
because that happened at my screening, uh, the, the showing that I went to as we were leaving, you could tell people like, oh, I saw four or five or I saw like two or three. Oh, really? Um, which is interesting because I think the marketing materials, like you know, when you see the FYC campaigns, I don't think any of them actually mention the one shot. So it's like a special treat for folks that are on the inside that, you know, read No Film School or have read about this film to know that it's, a you know, showed as a one but if you were just stumbling in and you didn't necessarily know, I'm kind of curious about what that person thinks, because I think knowing that it's a one-shot coming in potentially changes the way that you view this, and I would be curious to find someone who maybe didn't know um, that it was going to be played that way and what they thought. Well, yeah, because then they're sitting there and they're wondering, like, when is it going to cut? You know, exactly. whereas we know it's sure. never going to. So we don't have that tension of like, are they never going to cut? How long is this one going to go on? Like we know the full hour and 50 is going to try and be a one So it is a different kind of tension and a different expectation. I thought about it occasionally when they would go into a dark room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it would like go behind a person's back. I mean, I remember watching Rope for the first time. That's the Hitchcock Warner movie. In a, in a class a long time ago, and I was mesmerized by it because I thought the technique of it was so cool. And I was aware, like, there's one point where they open a chest, and, you know, that one, it's when you would change reels, basically. Um, and, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's something you're, you're aware of to some extent. Um, but I saw it with the, at a press screening, so there weren't people. I mean, they were thinking, and there was a Q&A after, so people weren't talking about I couldn't get a sense of the audience's genuine reaction in that sense. But I I do think that um, another interesting thing is that it's – the movie has a lot of – I don't know. You guys tell me if you had this feeling. A lot of incredible tension about the threat of danger without ever showing you a lot of active war stuff. It shows you some – but there's no opening sequence. There's no D-Day Saving Private Ryan sequence. And I think it's interesting for filmmakers who are thinking about ways to do to imply more but not show everything. Because we all know that one of the most effective ways to create tension with your audience is to like have a looming threat or an invisible threat or like the thing of the Jaws shark not being visible for the majority of the movie, the fear that you don't know, etc. But I think that, you know, this is a huge budget movie, obviously. But it's interesting to take into account that you can imply the massiveness of this war without showing really the massiveness. I mean, you don't show the ma- there there are parts that show some pretty big epic scale things. But for the most part, they don't. And I think that's pretty effective. Well, I think part of that is from the one shot. So there's an interesting thing with an edited movie where with an edited movie, you always have this sort of mental perception that you have a sense of the landscape. Right. I saw a wide shot. I know who's over here. Mm. I know who's over there. I'm seeing these shots. Whereas while watching 1917, I was so incredibly conscious of like the urge to look behind me at certain points, like the urge to like, like I want to look in that space over there because the filmmaker is never going to show me what's in that space over there. But there might be danger (laughs) there. And it is a real interesting because of the way in which this particular one shot is executed, it does lend you to different thoughts about space and tension. 
because the filmmaker doesn't have the power to just cut over and be like, nope, there's no Germans here, or oh, there is a German here. So yeah, I mean, I was continually conscious of the possibility of looming danger in all at at just outside of the frame. I think the winner also lets you focus on what I'm going to term kind of small-scale danger versus large-scale danger, right? Seeing things, this isn't giving anything away, seeing things like rats, seeing things like yeah. the cuts on people, you know, that's, a ch- you can do that in this, and it's small, I, I'm calling it small-scale, because it's, you know, it's not the, whereas the something like in the one or in, say, Atonement, right, where it was the the number of details and the number and the scale that it was trying to capture in one shot is different. But this allowed you, I mean, the one or here allowed you to see little, littler things and that were also dangerous, right? Things yeah, like yes. barbed wire suddenly become oh, escalated. Yeah. There's a character who catches their hand on the barbed wire and my audience gasped. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Which yes. is like in a normal, yeah. you know, in a Fast and the Furious 5, somebody sticking themselves on gut, <laughs> you know. Is not is not as dramatic as a Lamborghini flying from one building to another. That might have been Fast and Furious six, but you know it. No, but I I think that you're I think that what you guys are both touching on is exactly what I think is the most powerful lesson here for anybody trying to create tension without with like create visual tension, create a connection to the audience without needing spectacle. Someone getting cut on barbed wire can be a really big deal. More doesn't always mean better. Like bigger doesn't always mean better. Like you can frame something very small and have it be very impactful. And I think this movie is like a uh, masterclass in how to create like like human and uh, specific tension and drama without needing to pull out all the big guns necessarily over and over again. Because, yeah, I mean, Fast Five thousand does its stuff um, different ways like they do all of their they have different ways of creating tension and connecting with an audience but if you're looking to make little moments count like if you have less bullets to use then this is a good example of ways you can do that the one thing that made me step away if you will that made me kind of remember that this was a film that this was something that it made my brain go oh yeah um and like kind of stop watching the spectacle was the casting two in particular. I don't know if I'm allowed to name names. Well, I mean, it's all on the IMDb. The two leads are not totally unknown. I recognize them both. I've seen them in things and liked them, but they're not celebrities. Correct. Um, and my one of them in particular, IMDb is a thing, so I can say this. Um, I'm calling it the Stark moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they show... I mean, Richard Madden is in this film somewhere. You don't know where. And... Uh, they show him, and then <laughs> there's even a cello that plays. I, like, I expected the Stark theme song, and like I was, you know, I was ready for Game of Thrones, um, and not just because you know Tommen is in there. Um, and it made me forget. I mean, it literally made me almost laugh, and I felt kind of I felt bad because there is probably there there are a couple laugh moments actually in there somewhere, but this was you yeah. know that was maybe not the right place to do it, um, and that made me pause. And I and I I think. <sighs> Um, that, that, the casting question, you know, these are very, very, very talented actors. That's not what I'm, um, countering, but I think it did make my brain, you know, during a one shot, you want to hold people's attention the entire time, but that, those were the moments where I stopped and I was like, oh yeah, 
he's in this film, <laughs> and you don't want that. Yeah. And was the other? Uh, I, I think was the other Benedict which... Benedict Cumber Snatch Cumberwatch? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting for one. me is that there were other people along the way who were of equal celebrity. But I feel right. like it's something Jeremy strong. Right? Uh, yeah, Jeremy Strong and uh, Colin Firth and um, the hot priest appeared, whose name is Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott also appeared who like, you know, if you watch Sherlock and Fleabag counts as a celebrity. Uh, I mean, he's so good as the hot priest and he's so good as the uh, Moriarty and Sherlock. I mean, he's great. And he's phenomenal in this movie. I feel like the weird celebrities breaking the thing worked fine for me in the beginning. But as mm-hmm. the movie went along, I sunk deeper and deeper into its world. And totally we had yeah. more and, and we had fewer and fewer of them as he got deeper behind, you know, into the German side of the lines. And so I feel like it was just weird to have them at the ending. But will it yeah. be weird in 10 years when people are no longer obsessed with Game of Thrones or will they just watch the ending and it won't bother them? It's a good question. Um, I would say that it's funny because when you watch a movie, stars are such an important part of movie making. This is stating the obvious, but um, they are a part of what gets movies made. But they're also experientially for an audience. There's somewhere you can kind of like hook into a reality because you have expectations you feel comforted by them you know who they are they come to with a context for you so when you're watching a movie with no familiar faces you're sort of untethered and sometimes that's a really good thing but sometimes it also makes people feel i think subconsciously like it's not a movie in the same sense as other movies so you have to balance and i think that i think that in this instance there may have been some pull to cast a few names just because, like, this is Hollywood, right? And I think there may have also been, they obviously wanted to go with the leads with people we were unfamiliar with for the most part. But I think that how they used it, like, so I'll just talk for myself. When Jeremy Strong pops up, I was like, oh, cool. Like, Jeremy Strong, good casting, nice little moment. Like, he's the right guy at this time. This works. Makes sense why it's him. But by the time I got to Benedict, Cumberbatch and the other one towards the end I also sort of felt like okay now it's kind of distracting me because now it's like it's like the celebrity appearance was a bit of a punchline almost like Mm -hmm. it was like oh and it's so and so and that sort of felt a little bit like but I shouldn't be thinking about that right now because the whole movie has led to this moment right or these moments and I should just be thinking about the mo- the moment in terms of the story. When it was Jeremy Strong or Colin Firth, I think to your point, Charles, it was less like um, the movie. Th- this is what's kicking off some of the tension. This is not the end point. So that those are my two cents. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to cast these people throughout, sprinkle them in throughout the movie. But um, you know, does it does it take you out a little bit? I think. Yeah, it did for me too. So maybe it is something. It's not the kind of thing that's going to affect. I, I mean, here's an interesting point. If you're making a movie and you have enough, like you can get, this happens a lot for young filmmakers. You can get somebody to be in your movie to do like one scene, like a cameo, somebody with some cachet. And it'll maybe help you along the way you think, you hope. Where do you put them and what kind of part do you put them in? And I think even though this movie didn't need these guys to get made, I think there's an interesting way to look at it. Like maybe it makes more sense to use those kinds of people 
in the earlier parts of your movies in the less like payoff moments. But I guess it depends on your story. I don't know. It is really tricky to think about that and also think about like the moment in time when it exists. Like I was definitely I walked out feeling weird about the Game of Thronesiness of that character casting. But then I think about like, you know, there's so many movies I love from the 50s and 60s. And I'm sure the people who watched it at the time were like, oh, you just have the guy from Gunsmoke. But <laughs> now it's a different thing. So I, 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 yeah, it was a, a, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about as a filmmaker. Are you making it for right now? Or are you making it for like a bigger arc of time? Moving on. Up next, uh, Chris Terrio addresses the rise of Skywalker and why there was not more Leia and Rose. This is an interesting one. Uh, in case you don't know, there was a big Star Wars movie released at the end of 2019. <laughs> um, and you haven't been on the internet in a while. Uh, one of the big things that's gone on with this uh, recent Star Wars trilogy um, through Disney is that the character of Rose Tico, who was introduced in the last one, uh, the la- called The Last Jedi. The actress was the subject, as we've seen a few times now, of some really hateful, awful stuff through the internet. And then there was a lot of weird questions about whether or not there were bots sabotaging the ratings on The Last Jedi and what exactly was going on. And The Last Jedi was Ryan Johnson's film, and it was subversive of the direction that J.J. Abrams' first The Force Awakens <laughs> took the franchise in. Um, so there's a lot of context to, if you're not familiar with with where we are with this story, that's kind of the quick version. Um, and our, our article about it, um, headlined, Chris Terry apologizes to ILM for Leia VFX slate, kind of covers some of the context. So that, that could help you. But basically, so Chris Terry co-wrote um, The Rise of Skywalker, which was this December night, 2019 release, with J.J. Abrams. And... He said, basically, amidst backlash over this movie, that the reason Rose was minimized was not a result of fan backlash over the prior movie and and actually catering to that stuff. It was because she was the character who would have the most scenes with the Leia character. And, of course, Carrie Fisher has passed away. So they had to reuse old footage of Carrie Fisher and work with ILM to kind of modernize it, make it work in the context of the new story. And they felt that they couldn't make those moments work. Chris Terrio says ILM couldn't make those moments work well enough to use more of Rose. So that piece of uh, insight from Chris Terrio led to a pretty negative response partly because he made it seem like it was ILM's fault that they didn't use Rose more. So then he backtracked, and he had a comment that was an apology to ILM, saying he badly misspoke, saying that the wizards at ILM can do anything, essentially, and it was more about not having footage of Leia that matched the emotional tone that they needed, and it just got increasingly convoluted and Rube Goldberg-esque to try and explain why they didn't do what they wanted to do or couldn't do it. And look, I just, here's the thing. There's so much weird going on, in my opinion, in 
the rise of Skywalker. There's so much attempt to retcon certain things that happened in addition to close out a nine movie arc that's happened over 40 years, in addition to having Princess Leia be a primal, a primary figure in the movie and only using footage of her from prior movies and trying to cut that in in a meaningful way. I mean, there's so much. It's kind of insane. So I think that this, the strangeness of this comment and apology just fits into the strangeness of the circumstance. But I want to know what you guys think. And uh, yeah, I'll kick it. I'll kick it over to both of you. Um, I have just have a question that can potentially. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it adds context or makes it more confusing. The timeline for this, right? Carrie Fisher passed away before The Rise of Skywalker was done uh, writing. Were they, were they done writing before? Actually, she well, that's a very strange question because they had someone else <laughs> writing it years ago. So okay. no one really knows what the, okay. like Colin Trevorrow was writing it originally and he was removed from it. So who knows? Okay. But we know that um, she did die before the okay. release of The Last Jedi. Correct. So it was well before production began. Okay. That, I, okay. That's helpful. Because I think I would feel one way about this if something happened suddenly, and another way about this if they had time to plan. And they yeah, had time to fair. plan. Great. That's all I'll say. I know Charles is really excited to jump in here. So well, I'm just, so. I mean, my thoughts on this are just like, there's, there's two huge things that I think are interesting about this. One, anytime you try and explain the filmmaking process to outsiders, nuance always gets lost, right? And so like, for me, as soon as I hear like, oh, well, ILM couldn't do that. I immediately am like, oh, okay, well, you know, obviously ILM can do anything. So it me like... That means that, like, oh, within the boundaries of the source material we had, there were limitations on what we could accomplish. And I didn't, I didn't think he was sliding ILM. But it's really no, difficult for yeah. filmmakers to remember that outside the world, like, you know, Martin Scorsese just had a whole thing where he tried to make a nuanced argument and the internet didn't like it. And I think Chris Terrio <laughs> was trying to make a nuanced argument. And it's hard to make nuanced arguments. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always these limitations in filmmaking. Right. There's that great uh, example. Someone asked Kurosawa at a screening why he'd frame this one shot this one way in Seven Samurai. And he was like, oh, well, if you panned a little left, you saw the Sony factory. And if you panned a little right, you saw the Sony billboard. So that was the shot. <laughs> and you're like, That's yeah, great. I mean, there's you know, this is filmmaking. Like we're always working within these boundaries and doing as much as we can. And so, like, for me, it seems like a very reasonable thing to have said it that way originally. And I didn't understand the backlash. But on the flip side, you fight as a filmmaker hard to make the things work the way you want them to work and to give, you know, I mean, they're aware, the Star Wars franchise is aware that they're selling dolls and selling toys. Like, that's where they've always made their money. And you work as a screenwriter to give your characters real moments of action where they come alive. And there's like, in this whole thing, there's this moment where Chris is like, well, we made the decision that Rose Tran, I mean, Rose Tico is with Leia on the base and that's why we had nothing to do for her. And it's like, well, but you, you could have put any, like, okay, so you made that decision. And so you could have made another decision. Like, like yeah, I see, I think that's exactly where the thing sort of breaks down. Like, I, like to me, it's like, 
okay, you made that decision and then and thus you decided that nothing should happen there meaningfully to her, like even with Leia there, like in another area perhaps, or like, and like the, the, to me, it's just like, you didn't need to do that. Like it's an excuse. It just reads like an excuse. And the backlash, in my opinion, isn't about um, being rude about ILM. The backlash is about, be honest with us. We know you're making an excuse. Like people want to know, like just, just, you know, it's hard. And I know there's a million things coming at these guys. They're under all the, the Disney's huge. There's a release timeline. They don't have the power to do everything they want. They have things about selling dolls, but they also have problems about what characters need to be included and to what extent. And I, I can't even imagine what they're dealing with. But don't lie to people. Like it, people can see through that, you know, yeah. and I think that that's the problem with these statements is that I think everybody, it does not pass the t- sniff test. It's like, you could have made a different decision. You have the power. So, or just say, I couldn't make a different decision because I wasn't allowed to, or I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I just think that people don't like being lied to. I, I absolutely agree with that. But I also like, so I've only seen the first two of the new trilogy. I really enjoyed the Ryan Johnson, uh, Luke Skywalker movie. I, I know that the internet doesn't agree with me, but whatever. I thought it was fucking great. I loved it. Um, but one of my complaints about the Phantom Menace, not the Phantom Menace, whatever the first one is. The, the first, Force Awakens. Yeah. Yes. Was I really felt like a lot of the characters that were supposed to be the new heroes didn't do a lot. Uh, and I feel like it's a problem of all of the new trilogy, I'm guessing, because I haven't seen Rise of Skywalker, is that like there's a lot for Rey and Kylo Ren to do. But I felt like Poe and uh, Finn didn't have a lot of like core action. Uh, and I feel like it's just there's so many characters they are trying to integrate where they want Leia doing stuff, they want Luke doing stuff, they want, I mean, Luke's now gone, but, like, there's so many people, and it's, like, it's hard to have nine people take effective plot-critical action in one screenplay. Um, and yet the Avengers guys, the Avengers team... Does it well. Yeah. ...figure out a way. But, I, yeah, I don't know. I think that the movie was under... It, who knows? It would be amazing if we could get a book. I mean, there are countless Reddit threads from people who claim to know people on the inside and can tell you exactly why The Rise of Skywalker was under... You know, and it all sounds like some more convoluted nonsense. But there may be kernels of truth. I wish we could get a book one day that was like, hey, here's what happened on that Star Wars sequel trilogy. Because here's the question. Like, and I don't know, I can't figure this one out. Why didn't they plan all three movies as one cohesive thing from the get-go? Because it's so strange how, you know you're going to make three, you know they're all going to be a hit. I don't, and you know you got all the same people signed on. I don't understand that part of it. It's fascinating. I mean, I think it worked really well on The Lord of the Rings. I had the same weird reaction. This is kind of a weird parallel to It. Chapter one, chapter two. I was like, you knew this was coming. It was called chapter one. So why de-age kids, right? Like, why not film it then? I never understood There's that. Good, I'm <laughs> sure there are very good reasons. And as oh, I'm from sure. The filmmaker, from the filmmaker perspective, it's just we, we are left guessing because there's so much we don't have access to know. And even if we did, they wouldn't tell us because there's reasons they don't want to. But I think the other thing is there's a lot of changes coming in the Disney in the Star Wars ILM Disney power structure, I think in some ways it feels like they've been positioning to kind of like throw Kathleen Kennedy under the bus with some of this. Oh, really? I haven't, the I haven't. Interesting. That would be, that would be bold. 
It's just strange. Like, it's a strange, it feels like a strange situation, and we are left, so we can only see a certain amount of what's happening. We don't, we can't analyze all of it, but it's such a major piece of the industry right now, and what, Disney was responsible for so much of the box office this year, and this this Star Wars trilogy, this Star Wars thing was like a $4 billion investment and this movie being so disjointed and strange. And this Rose thing is really just like a perfect microcosm of the weirdness of the internet era, of the reaction to it. And like how did this weirdly vocal minority really, was it really the tail that wagged the dog here? That seems so crazy, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I guess the difference between today and Lord of the Rings is at one point, New Line was willing to be like, all right, we trust you, Peter Jackson. Go shoot three movies at once. And one will come out every, was it every year or every two years? It was every year. But, like, they didn't feel like they needed to change the third one based on how Reddit reacted to the first one. Yeah. I mean, it was there wasn't Reddit back then. So, like, I guess email group threads, whatever existed MySpace. in the 90s. I don't know yeah. what year it was. No, it was before MySpace. Friendster. It was before Friendster. It was before any of that. Ugh. So they could just literally be like, all right, we're just going to go make these three movies back to back in one go. And then we're just going to roll them out one year after another. And and I believe they did extensive additional shoots each time yeah. to supplement what they had. But I think that that, like, yeah. And it was New Line, right? Yeah. New Line wasn't Disney. Like, No, that yeah. was what was so crazy I don't know. about it. It's strange. Yeah. The countdown is officially on. We're only a few days away from Edelkron's biggest reveal in years. A brand new filmmaking tool that no one knows yet. Edelkron is starting off the year with a great challenge and giving away the product involved to one of you. To win it, all you have to do is head over to Edelkron's Instagram account, check out their post about the challenge, and share that image on Instagram with the hashtag Edelkron before January 20th. Stay tuned for the product launch on January 20th. Okay, moving on. Up next, tech news. So we've got one bit of tech news this week, uh, and it comes out of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which I've never been to. But, uh, you know, whenever I'm in Vegas and uh, I go to Vegas for NAB, it always feels like a super big deal because NAB is so dominant in our industry. And the cab drivers are always like, what are you here for? NAB, never heard of it. But... Uh, and I'm always like, so what are the big shows? And they're like, oh, CES and the wedding show are the big shows in Vegas. Um, and CES is in January every year, and it's when all the new TVs get announced that you can't buy until fall. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of 8K TVs this year and stuff and all sorts of interesting things. But the big filmmakery sort of centric news is uh, a camera from Insta360, a company that really needs to change their name. I like you guys into 360. It's such a gentle mockery, but 360 is no longer your bread and butter. You're making a whole lot of flat cameras now too. Um, but they make interesting stuff, Insta360. They, they made their name making really cool 360 cameras. And they just came out with an action camera called the One R. And it is, so it's like a GoPro form factor, right? It's roughly GoPro sized. It uses the same GoPro mount. So if you already have like, a dog mount and a surfboard mount and everything, or like a handlebar mount or a helmet mount. It'll fit in all of those. Um, so it's in that same general GoPro form factor. But here's what's really weird and interesting about it. It is modular, which means there's like a little brain unit and then a little like sensor and lens unit and then a little battery unit and you swap them together. And it's kind of brilliant. I can't, 
Like, so modular cameras are something filmmakers are used to on big cameras all the time, right? Like you have an Alexa and you interchange the lenses and you interchange the batteries and you interchange the recorder and like Red with their whole digital stills and motion camera, the DSMC platform, modularity on big cameras is super normal. But little cameras, first off, because they're small, we don't really feel the need to break them into pieces, but also because one of the things we want out of an action cam is we want durability. And so my first thought when I saw this is I was like, oh, well, they're going to sacrifice waterproofness. But nope, it is still nine meters waterproof. You put it, you snap it together, and you can go swimming with it without a water cage, which is nuts. Um, the interesting thing for me is they've also made it really flexible in terms of the way it's swappable. So normally the viewfinder, the, the sort of video screen is mounted on the back. But let's say you wanted to mount it up against a wall. Well, you can flip the brain so that the screen's facing forward towards you, towards the same direction as the lens, so that when you mount it on a wall, you can see what your framing is, which I think is like a really smart way to have a monitor wherever you want it. You know, the uh, DJI Osmo Action has a monitor on front and on back to do the same thing, but this way you only need the one monitor. You just flop it which way you want to go. There's the normal size battery, which you can get this extra waterproof case. So you can dive to, I think, 65 meters with the extra waterproof case. But if you're not using it with the waterproof case, you can actually get an extra big battery, which is super great. Because as filmmakers, I don't usually go, go use GoPros like strapped to my mountain bike out in the woods. I use GoPros like on a set, I'm getting a crash cam shot. I'm getting a weird other angle. I'm like sticking six in a car or whatever. And the ability to have a bigger battery, so I'm not worried about battery swaps as much, is so huge. And what's nice is you can swap out the sort of sensor camera module. And they did one sensor camera module in collaboration with Leica with a one-inch sensor, which is a huge sensor for an action cam. I mean, it's not like a big sensor normally, but for an action cam, a one-inch sensor is great. It's a one-inch sensor, and it's a Leica-designed lens. And I think that that's actually going to be pretty popular with a lot of filmmakers who are like, They've already got some GoPro infrastructure, but they haven't upgraded since a Hero 5 or whatever. And now it's time to get a new action cam. And, you know, a 5K action cam with a one-inch sensor is kind of dynamite. Uh, you can still get a 360 module for it, which has lenses facing forward and backwards. So they're still true to the 360 roots. But that is the tech news for the week, the Insta 361R. That's pretty cool. Can you, uh, I mean, I feel like you touched on some before and Michelle, I want to hear what you think about this, but can you guys talk to me about like use cases in your common, like, like, is it, uh, is this something you definitely would add to your kit that you definitely have with you as your, you know, action cam option? The biggest draw for me is the ability to see what you're filming at all times, which I think was the challenge it's always been the challenge i think with a with a gopro um unless you attached other things to it um there is kind of like a selfie mode now uh with the max i believe uh but you have to kind of add on to it to do it um but the kind of movable like oh i can put this anywhere like and see it is really really enticing one of the places i could see this being really really helpful is um so Side note, um, I do a lot of fly fishing, which is something that you probably don't hear ever on this podcast ever. Um, <laughs> and here we go. And being able to put it underwater, but also see, like I could put a, like the LCD up, right? And so you could see what's being filmed forward is 
awesome. Like that would be a kind of a game changer for a lot of folks that are like are in weird angles. So just like the, you know, the tilting LCD screen on DSLRs when those that came out, they're like, "Oh my god, I can put this here and I can see what's going on. I don't have to be in this weird angle." Um that would be sweet. So in terms of my arsenal, would I add it to my fly fishing kit? Maybe. Um, <laughs> and the and the other way underwater without a cage, being able to see what's forward is all of that would make it yeah, a tool I would use, yes. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with all of that. And then I would say that, like, for certain kinds of filmmaking work, around 2011 or 2012, it just became a habit that you assumed someone on set had a GoPro. Like, yes. and, Interesting. you know, usually, I mean, there was always the first AC that had, like, six GoPros in a case that, you know, like, people who do a lot of car work, people who do a lot of reality TV work, people who do a lot of action work. But, like, I've been on a ton of, like, narrative jobs where it's like oh we're gonna have this character dive into a pool at the end of the scene and then you know the first day she's like hey do you, should i just throw the gopro underwater and we just get that as well and especially because when it's rigged underwater you never see it in shot you know i can't tell you the number of times we're just like oh sure yeah why not we'll just like throw a couple in the water and like sometimes it cuts <laughs> cut in sometimes it doesn't but it is a gopro has become one of those tools that a lot of people tend to have in their bag I mean, for fly fishing, yeah, yeah, you could attach it to the lure. Is that what it's called, the lure? Uh, the, for the feathery fly thing at the end. Um, no. So for fly fishing, it's a little. I won't go into this, but in the fly fishing, okay. the, the size of the <laughs> hooks are different. They're usually smaller okay. since you're like letting the. What you're doing is you're faking being a fly, basically that lands right. on the water, so you don't have it's very heavy. It's not very heavy, but if you're filming underwater, like uh, yeah, I don't know a lot of people. I feel like it would be fun to try, but if you're around I'm just water. Yeah, it would be cool if they could give you make you a camera that you could attach to the end of the line, right? And you could uh, like slap it in there and pull it out and you see what it looks like. Would scare <laughs> a lot of fish, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm so glad to have made No Film School podcast a fly fishing podcast. My family is going to be thrilled. <laughs> that is awesome. All right, up next we have an Ask No Film School question. The question comes from Arthur. Gertz, it's all one word, so I'm not sure if that's actually your name or not, but I, I'm going to say that it's your name. Uh, hello, I'm looking for recent, in the last decade, super successful short films. Films that like got distribution, played airplanes, had audiences, made industry waves. What does the best case scenario look like in the short film market? And I picked this question because when I first opened it in the boards, I was worried it was going to be like, what's a super ex successful short film where like someone directed one short and then they got to direct a Marvel movie. And I was like, that isn't that interesting. But I really liked the way it was like, hey, got distribution, found audience, played airplanes, like a, a, a short that had a life. And I thought that was a really good question. So I have a couple of examples, but I wanted to open it up to you guys first. This is a tough one for me because I didn't realize, like, it's a great question. Um, I thought... We were talking. I didn't know we were limiting ourselves to a decade here. Um, oh. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of examples of shorts that have launched careers and sort of gotten people started, and and even the shorts themselves have had some success. Uh, but I feel like I don't know the last decade well enough to say a short that had its really its own uh, life. Um, See, we have a post, interestingly enough, on nofilmschool.com called What Are the 50 
plus best short films of all time on YouTube. And I think you could find in looking at this list of shorts, just some of the most like, you know, high quality in terms of execution. I don't know if this would answer your question as to whether or not they are the most they've had they've had the most individual success. Um, but I think you could explore that certainly if you're just looking for shorts that are successful in terms of their um, execution. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have a specific short in mind or two that I could reference, so I'll have to pass. I have one. The one that came to mind first and actually uh, immediately was um, period end of sentence, which was the documentary short film Oscar winner from last year. Uh, from 2018, so I guess that's two years technically, um, and got picked up by Netflix um, and is in their queue. And I think what's great about it is, one, it works very well, I think, as a short film. I'm not sure that... I think that was a smart decision to make it a short film versus you know a 90-minute or two-hour documentary um, because... Uh, the, of the con- Not just because of the content, but because I think it, now it can be shared, it can be... Um, it's small scale enough where a lot of people can watch it. Um, and it, there was this, I think Netflix kind of provided an opportunity for it to go, to be viewed widely. Um, that one to me is also, uh, came to mind because it's so unique in its content. I mean, uh, the woman who won um, her team, she came up on stage in the Oscars and says, "Guys, we made a we made a film about a period and a film about periods, and it made we got an Oscar for it, um, which is for me uh, a wonderful one of the wonderful moments I think that happened in the in the show um, in in 2018, 2019. Um, so that one is you can check that out. It's, I think it's still on Netflix. Um, period. End of sentence. It's about um, feminine hygiene in in, in India. And, um, which is, it's just fascinating. And I think as a short film, it, it was very successful, um, in that, in that element. Uh, I'd be curious to talk with them at some point to see if they were ever considering to make it a longer film as a, you know, creating a short film in order to get funding and distribution and things in place to be able to make a longer one. Um, I think it works very well as the, in the size that it is. So I just realized, and I, I just had a complete brain like blank but of course one of the successful shorts we can talk about is ryan Koo's amateur so <laughs> ryan Koo uh, of no film school who the founder of no film school wrote and directed a short called amateur that had a lot of success it was an indie wire uh or sorry indie wire you can scratch that it was a vimeo staff pick it was featured all over the place and it led to his making the feature film of amateur on that was for Netflix. So that was a short film and you can read all about that and the process of creating it and the Kickstarter also on nofilmschool.com. But uh, that was within the last decade and it was the, the short itself had a successful life, played festivals, won some awards, and of course also led to the expansion of the content. So I'm going to call out uh, three short films, one of which might not be available for you to watch online yet, but I think it's worth pointing out because it's the most recent example probably in this conversation. And one of the reasons why I think recent is really important and one of the reasons why I think you pointed out in the last decade with your question is the world of shorts is so much different than it was 
you know, like when we were talking about this before, George was like, oh, well, Drunk History led to a TV show. But that was like 2006, 2007. (laughs) Like, there are so many more shorts now that it's much harder to break out from the noise. It's much harder to find a life. It's much harder to find a thing, which makes the examples that do much more interesting and educational to learn from, I think. The three I'm going to list, one of which uh, my production company produced, and it's a short film called Buzkashi Boys, directed by Sam French. And uh, it's one of those things where he had sort of... Uh, I, I always like talking about Buzkashi Boys because he... Uh, you know, Sam was a filmmaker I knew in L.A., and like many filmmakers in L.A., he uh, was sort of frustrated by his career, and then he met a woman at Burning Man, and he fell in love with her, and he was like, I'm going to follow her wherever my life leads me, and I'm going to, like, if that means I'm done with film, fine. And so he, she worked at the Afghani embassy, the British embassy in Kabul, so he moved to Kabul, Afghanistan to be with her, and then it invigorated his filmmaking career. So, like, following his heart, doing the thing for love, and uh, he got there, he started a production company, he started making all this work, he wrote a short film uh called buskashi boys uh he got government money to make it and uh it got nominated for an oscar and it like reawoke his career in a way and um you know there's lots of really beautiful things about buskashi boys it's a really well-written screenplay it's really well directed it's beautifully shot but it's also a portrait into another world and i think a lot of successful short films that really do have a life have a life by giving us a portrait into a world that we might not otherwise have access to. And that's something that big cinema often doesn't really do an amazing job of, right? Like a lot of what, I mean, you know, forget about Star Wars. I'm talking about like, you know, like other legitimate experiences in the world that we currently live on. I feel like short films are a great, a great way to do that is to give us a portrait of something we don't otherwise see. And I think Buskashi Boys does a really, you know, it's about two two street kids in Kabul, Afghanistan, who dream of playing the national sport of Afghanistan, Buskashi. And uh, it's a really well done short that like had career benefits for the director. Uh, and, you know, not coincidentally, my, my company produced it, so we should I should give a call out on that. Um, the next one I want to call out to is Greener Grass. Uh, had nothing to do with Greener Grass. Um, but Greener Grass is a, it was a big hand on Vimeo and it, you know, I believe it was two actors who wrote it for themselves to star in and it's got a real clear, distinct voice and personality and had a big festival life and played lots of festivals. And I think just the last summer got shot as a feature. And so I'm sure you will be hearing about the feature sometime soon. So I think Greener Grass is a really good example. And then the last one I'm going to give a shout out to is a film called Bob and Dale. Uh, it was one of the inaugural thesis class at the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, where I'm a professor, and uh, directed by a great director, David Rossfeld. And the reason why I bring it up is you specifically said, shown on airplanes, and JetBlue just had a thing where five short films are going to show on airplanes, and Bob and Dale was one of them. And um, yeah, I mean, I think... If there's a common thread in the three that I highlighted, and actually I would actually say the common thread was also the same in the two you highlighted, were really detailed looks at very specific areas of the world that are a little bit outside the mainstream but still fascinating. Although I would say that like periods should be in the mainstream. The fact that it's not in the mainstream when we're like a 51% female society is bullshit. But like... It's outside the male. I'm main... cheering over here. You yeah. just can't see it. But like, uh, but because it's been historically neglected, it's sort of a window outside of, um, you know, that. And I think amateur is definitely looking at that specific window in collegiate athletics. And uh, Bob and Dale is about an aging gay couple. And it's sort of a, like, you know, it's it's trying to reckon with 
end of life and relationships in a really beautiful way. And so, yeah, I think those are the things you should really think about as you're preparing a short film is trying to identify a world that you can speak about with real depth. Yeah, and I just want to add one last thing because I thought of another one because you mentioned the drunk history thing, which obviously is out of the range of this. But one of my favorite short things I've ever seen in my life was House of Cosby's, which was created by Justin Roiland, who's now known for Rick and Morty. But this was a long, long time ago, probably closer to 20 years ago. And it's extremely strange. And it's a cartoon. And it's like the strangest off-the-wall thing. And he got a cease and desist letter from Bill Cosby himself. So they had to pull it off the internet, which is really funny and dark in hindsight now. But he, it's just his weirdness with no holds barred. And I think that, you know... When you talk about what you're going to do with a short or why you're going to make a short, having your own perspective or providing us with a perspective that's unique, it could be about a time and place or geography or a less or, or just a circumstances that are not shown to mainstream audiences often, or it could just be how weird you are in your own way. And that's what I always think about when I think, because as soon as I saw House of Cosby's all those years ago, I thought... One day, that guy will find someone will figure out that that guy's some kind of genius and it'll make its way into the mainstream, but I don't know how. And eventually it happened, but he had to do a lot of weird things that were just too weird for anyone first. So I think embracing your perspective and your style in a short or your point of view will always benefit you. All right, guys, so that has been the first podcast for No Film School for 2020. We'll have another one next week. The week after that, we will have all sorts of stuff coming out of Sundance. So uh, gear up, get ready for a whole bunch of sundance news coming your way. Uh, this has been Charles Hain. You can check me out on the Instagrams and the Twitters, at Charles Hain, or my only tech news podcast, The Week in Film Tech. This is Michelle De La Tour. I'm the fly fisher woman slash writer, or er, contributor <laughs> at uh, No Film School and Tech tech department you can find me on the socials at mdelator m-d-e-l-a-t-e-u-r happy 2020 and i'm george edelman editor-in-chief at no film school you can find all kinds of great content at nofilmschool.com head over to our facebook page where we also sometimes post memes which are fun uh find us on twitter at no film school find me on twitter at george edelman and we have a lot of cool stuff coming to no film school right now um we're covering stuff out of ces we are getting some of our advanced coverage for Sundance coming up. So if you're excited to hear about what's going to be happening at Sundance or hear from people who are involved with Sundance, we had I did an interview with Michelle Satter, who is one of the founders of the Sundance Institute that is up now. Um, I spoke with her a couple weeks ago, and that's still live, and she has all kinds of insights. She's been there the whole time. So that's a really cool one. And we have more cool stuff coming your way. So check us out. Thanks. Mm-hmm.